Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Guai Xi uh, and, and networking uh, have some similarities, but also some sig significant differences. The Guai Xi really relates to personal relationships. That is, Guai Xi is portable. If, if I have a relationship with you because of your company, and then you go to another company, I still have the relationship with you and it's still intact. Whereas with networking, I have a relationship with you as a member of your company. And if you leave that company, it is normal that my networking with you would lapse because it is with your company and I would find somebody else in your company to network with. However, obviously if you, had a good network in your new company, I'd want to network with you as well. So networking is primarily based with commercially based corporate uh, to corporate relationships, whereas Guanxi is personal. An important thing about uh, Guanxi is that friendships and relationships are not sought exclusively for personal enjoyment. Uh, it, it, it can be that somebody wants to have a relationship with you because they feel that you can help them. And that is the underlying reason why they have the relationship so that they can call upon you to engage with a third party on their behalf. This is rather a perversion of doing somebody a favor uh, and them feeling that they owe you one, one in return. Another point that you need to be careful of is that you should not put a Chinese in a position where he is totally unable to return a favour because that would mean that he would lose enormous face. The Chinese sometimes uh, when dealing with people prefer to use in intermediaries especially if they want to communicate something unpleasant or a complaint uh, and this happens in Chinese politics for example where uh, a prominent politician will have a subordinate and the subordinate may be taken to court and even put to prison uh, as a message to the to his boss that what the boss is doing is not correct. So this is an age old approach uh, to personal and business relationships in China. We uh, in the past have all have used intermediaries to in negotiations to flow ideas out to the other side without actually any commitment by anybody. And the way I've done that in the past is by using the translator uh, who uh, I've known, the translator that I use, I've known her for 15 years. Uh, I have absolute faith in her <clears throat> and she can float a trial balloon, get the re reaction. If the reaction is favorable, then we can table it formally at the meeting. So intermediaries are extremely useful. Now you might think uh, that because it's a communist country, 
China doesn't have any class distinction. But actually, China has never been particular ega particularly egalitarian. And you'll remember from my previous podcast that we've talked about hierarchies and Confucius. And clearly, in a hierarchy, there, are, there can be class distinctions between the ruler and the ruled, for example, where uh, nobody would argue that the emperor uh, is not superior to the people that he's, that he's ruling. And it's, so you, you need to, how where people's position in the hierarchy often depends how they're treated by the Chinese. Uh, and for example, I've seen Chinese bosses treat their subordinates very badly, notwithstanding all that I'm saying about face and guanxi and so on. No, these, these are ideals they're not always kept to. Regarding uh, respect, the rich and powerful are definitely seen as deserving extra deference. Uh, and you must be very careful to be deferential to the people who are at the top of the company or who own it or high government officials. Fortunately for us, foreigners are generally accorded a fairly high status. And so people tend to be deferential to us as well, which sometimes can be slightly disturbing, especially if you're not used to it. The Chinese don't traditionally trust business. Uh, according to traditional Chinese culture, the people were ranked in four classes from the highest to the lowest, as it were. And these are at the top intellectuals, then farmers, then workers, and then business people at, at the bottom. So, and you can see that it's not a good idea to say that you're a business person. Perhaps it's much better to say that you are an intellectual uh, and hopefully you are, or even an engineer, for example, if, you're, if you've got a qualification in engineering. Uh, a business person is to an extent a pejorative term. You also must also remember that up until 19, that, I'll just say up until 1979, China was a communist country, but China actually still is a communist country. And business people were regarded at best as bourgeois uh, and at worst as exploiters of the working class. And there are still vestiges of that in Chinese society. I'd now like to look at some more specific instances of culture in business. The Chinese are very suspicious of foreigners uh, in business because they have been badly treated in the past uh, and they are always looking for traps that have been set by the foreigners. If you want to know how the Chinese think about business. There are two books that I would recommend to you very highly. One is called The Art of War by a Chinese called Sun Tzu, 
This is a very old book, probably at least 2000 years old. Uh, and it tells, it's like a military manual telling you how to wage war in ancient China. Many of these approaches are still adopted by Chinese businessmen today. The other book, which I, is e equally old, is called, called The 36 Stratagems. Uh, and that has uh, chapters in it like loot a burning house, uh, which means, you know, if, some, if, if, a, if for example, if a company is in trouble, then, you know, take, advant uh, take advantage of it. Uh, and there are, there are 35 other stratagems that Chinese business people adopt. And these are the two basic textbooks for Chinese business. Uh, and all of them have read, all businessmen have read these and know them. And of course, if you can quote from either of these books to a Chinese businessman, that would give you face uh, and it would also give face to China because the foreigner is learning about Chinese culture and customs. <clears throat> uh, another couple of things that you perhaps ought to remember are both quotes from Deng Xiaoping. Uh, one is, it does not matter whether a cat is black or white, so long as it catches mice. And really this, the, what, what this means is the, that the end justifies the means. Uh, that uh, if, if China wants to develop, then it does have to adopt capitalist methods to be able to earn the wherewithal to make the standard of living of the population better. And another quote is, to get rich is glorious. Uh, which it was, uh, which was and is uh, encouragement from Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese Communist Party uh, that there is nothing wrong with getting rich. Incidentally, you might also be interested to know that in the latter years of his life, Deng Xiaoping had no official title except he was chairman of the Chinese Bridge Association, which I find quite amusing. Now, you're bound to get problems with Chinese when you're negotiating. Uh, and when Chinese have a problem, they say, consider, research, or even no problem. Now, for us Westerners, when somebody says he will consider it, we would normally say that there's a higher than 50, than a 50% chance of being accepted. While the Chinese mean that there's a much less, there's much less than a 50% chance of, of, of something being accepted. For the Chinese, research means that they want to stall the process or that they do not want to cause problems by rejecting something too quickly. Uh, and also when they say no problem, that can often mean there are many problems, but we're not going to tell you what they are. So when, when either of any of these come through, consider research, no problem. Just think about the context in which these are, uh, are said uh, and do not take them at face value because you, uh, you may well make a mistake.
I thought it might be useful to look at, at one approach that you might take towards business in China. You would have intensive personal interaction with your potential customers or partners, identifying who is related to the project, who is the decision maker, whose personal interests are at stake. For example, the leader of any negotiation will have some personal interest at stake because if the negotiations are not successful, the chances are that he may be demoted or even lose his job. It, it, it could be that ruthless. So you need to consider what, what does he have at stake? Uh, does he have it, what business interests uh, and what personal interests does he have? Don't be deceived by uh, the democratic, diplomatic or consensus style of any Chinese key decision maker. In my experience, key decision makers in China are ruthless at pursuing their own interests. And I think that's what you should do as well. You know, we, we, we all need to uh, pursue our own interests to the greatest extent that we can. Chinese also use banquets uh, to show appreciation, both to you and you should use them uh, to, to show appreciation to them. Uh, and I will talk a lot more about banquets at the end of this podcast. Suffice to say that banquets are an extremely important part of doing business in China. I mentioned about developing insights about the behavior by looking at the context in, in, in which there is an interaction. Sometimes in negotiations, if we've had several people on our team, I have asked one of the people just to observe the interaction between the participants on the Chinese side to see who is in charge, how they react to uh, suggestions, how they react to questions, how they react to problems. Uh, and I think that can give you a big insight into what the other side is, is thinking. You, as I've said earlier, should use flattery uh, to get your own way. Uh, praise the Chinese for being smarter than the foreigners, uh, even in, in some respects, if not altogether. Now, the Chinese consider themselves to be very sophisticated businessmen. It does no harm to tell them that you know that they're sophisticated business people. They may even drop their guard. You may want to give money uh, to relevant people in subtle ways but you don't want to cause any problem with corruption. Corruption is a perennial problem in China. And my advice to you is not to have anything to do with it. Uh, if somebody else wants to do it, that's fine. Uh, but as a foreigner, I think you could, you're potentially very vulnerable. And I, for one, would not want to spend any time at all in a Chinese prison. 
I talked about flattering uh, business people. You also need to flatter flatter high-ranking government officials, telling them things like, "Well, we know that you know some people cut corners, some people uh, do things that are illegal, but we're absolutely certain that you're not the sort of person who would do that, whether they are or not." Understand all the implicit agreements behind a formal agreement. Chinese formal agreements are less explicit than the type of contract that you might be used to for a big project or a, a, a big order for, for product. Uh, and you should take a holistic view of what you're doing. And remember that some of the formal activity that you've come across may just be for show anybody. It may just be to prepare to <coughs> to impress you and be sensitive to the feelings of the Chinese. Uh, you need to have some form of empathy uh, 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 and, and people do not choose in your negotiating team people who don't have empathy uh, or people who've got a bad attitude and help the Chinese to save face uh, even in situations where, of their own making. I think I've mentioned uh, we've talked about Guanxi uh, I think personal relationships with the Chinese account for more than fifty percent of success. So you want to make friends. You know, you want to make friends with uh, your partners, your Chinese partners. Many times in China, you will hear the phrase that Chinese Chinese do business with old friends, and one of your objectives is to become an old friend as quickly as possible. Now, this sometimes can be quite difficult because. You know, to travel to China, you've got a journey of 6,000 miles uh, and it's not the sort of thing that you can do every week or you will want to do every week, especially in these COVID times. But assuming that you can travel, I would suggest if you're serious about business and serious about building up a relationship, you ought to be traveling to China once every six weeks, uh, whether the business requires it or not. The reason you'd be traveling is to build up the relationship. And after you've been going, say, two or three or maybe four times, you'll find that your China, Chinese counterparts think that they've known you longer than they really have. And therefore, they're much more likely to do business with old friends. Keep all emotion out of your business dealings, I, 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 we've talked about harmony uh, with, with the Confucian approach to life. Do not say things that might be offensive. One offensive sentence could jeopardize a whole deal. Uh, and the Chinese remember these things. They always seem to remember things that have happened you know, a month, six months, a year ago, and when it's necessary, that they will, bring, they will bring it back to you and quote it to you. <clears throat> Attitudes to Western business. Many Chinese believe that the Western way of doing business is less sophisticated than Chinese practices. I think you probably can see a theme emerging here uh, that Chinese think that they are very superior and more sophisticated to we people in the West. I suspect that we 
feel the opposite, that we're superior to the people in the East. In, in, you've got to acknowledge and recognize this Chinese feeling of superiority. And you've also got to put a damper on any feelings you have where you feel that the Chinese may, may be inferior. As I say, Westerners are not as, <clears throat> in Chinese eyes, Westerners are not as mentally, psychologically, or culturally sophisticated as the Chinese. They're afraid of the Chinese business environment because too many factors are unknown to them. Now, obviously, uh, you can't know everything about the Chinese business environment, but you do need to be prepared and you do need to know something about the people you're dealing with. One of the criticisms made of Western businessmen when they go to China is that they rush to talk about business without spending very much time on social activities. Uh, and I've had problems with this with my clients. Uh, that they, they go in and they immediately want to get down to business in the, you know, in the first meeting. Actually, if you, especially if you're doing a big deal, the first two or three days, even the whole of the first business trip will be spent getting to know you and getting to know you well enough to make a judgment whether you're, you're to be trusted, whether you're somebody we want to do business. Uh, and I've spent lots of times initially uh, going sightseeing with clients, being taken out to nightclubs, uh, being entertained. And, but remember, all the time you're, you're under scrutiny. Uh, you need to be very careful. You need to control yourself. You need to behave properly, as you would in the UK you know, or, or, or elsewhere. I mean, we, we, we all like to think that we behave properly. That's no different in, in China. When it comes to things like joint venture negotiations, the Chinese believe that Westerners are very good at manipulating statistics. And that's a worry, really. If somebody says manipulating statistics, it usually means uh, that somebody is trying to hide something or pull the wool over somebody's eyes. So be very careful when, you, when you're giving statistics that they present as true a picture as possible. Uh, we also spend a lot of time on intellectual property matters, which are important to us. And part of that is down to China's reputation for stealing intellectual property. And you've got to make sure that you don't give them anything uh, that they can use and that any intellectual property you do give them is, is, is contractually covered so that they can't steal it or use it. Uh, and yeah, Western businessmen are accused often of not understanding Chinese culture, history, how the labor system, system works, how China operates itself and what the Chinese legal system is like. And, and, and you should familiarize yourself to an extent with all of these things. Chinese academic studies <clears throat> of, that have been conducted by foreigners tend to be su superficial. When I say you know, that they, if you get market reports on China, uh, they're not specific enough for most companies need. Uh, and uh, they also tend 
to confirm the superiority of Western business over Chinese business, uh, which is not very uh, well received by the Chinese. Westerners are not subtle enough to sense the context and the political factors in the system. They don't understand the, the pressures that Chinese business people and Chinese companies are under. Uh, they don't understand how the Chinese have personal interests as well as business interests uh, and how they are beholden to the bureaucracy. Remember that China invented bureaucracy. They have the oldest bureaucratic system in the world and Chinese business people and managers spend a lot of time trying to negotiate the bureaucracy. Uh, and there is a, there's a sort of patron-client relationship between business people and bureaucrats in China. Uh, so you, you, know, you, you, you need to understand that. You also need to be wary of taking messages at face value in formal settings in meetings. Chinese meetings, which we will look at in a while, Chinese meetings, the formal meetings, tend to be a declaration of positions. They're not really negotiations. The negotiations tend to be done offstage uh, between in individuals. Most Chinese negotiators are very selfish and they're looking to their own interests and they're not necessarily sophisticated and they're not necessarily corrupt. And you need to, to make allowances for that. They don't have sophisticated technical or investment knowledge, but this is getting better. As China develops, more, more and more younger people are getting into positions of responsibility and they have very good knowledge of both the technology uh, and the finances of doing business. And I think it would always be a mistake to underestimate uh, the Chinese. You've got to assume that they're at least as good as you and then you won't make any silly mistakes. Uh, banquets are a good way of exploring personal interests and to develop relationships. Uh, breaking bread, as it were, with somebody is a good way to, towards getting to know, know them. Uh, and Chinese banquets can be very sociable affairs, as we will find out later. Another point that I would like to make is that as we have very little knowledge of the Chinese West, uh, Chinese economic and political systems, they have very little knowledge of ours. Uh, and so we may have to explain to them some of the pressures that we're under uh, from politics. The way that Westerns are perceived is not really very flattering. Uh, we are regarded as being arrogant. I think that's something that goes uh, back a long time to when uh, British, a British delegation went to the Emperor's court in the late 18th century. Uh, and, and you've got to remember that whenever you go to China, you're almost always a supplicant at the court of the, uh, of the Chinese emperor, as it were, uh, and you should not behave arrogantly. You should treat people with respect. 
we regarded it as being legally orientated, that we that the the letter of the law is more important than the spirit of the agreement and the holistic uh, shape of the agreement. And we that's why uh, we have such large contracts. Uh, a Chinese contract tends to be a lot shorter than a Western contract. Uh, and if you allow a lawyer to write, say, a joint venture contract or a big project co contract, uh, you will have problems with the Chinese. I've seen Chinese groan with pain when somebody produces a contract that's 100 or even 150 pages long, uh, full of legalese and boilerplate and really, in many ways, irrelevant things. So we, we are too legalistic. Um, we try to get round being legalistic and I, I can explain that later one way of, do, of doing this. They also uh, believe that we lack preparation uh, and I think this is right that, that uh, a lot of business people go you know oh China let's go to China let's do some business in China. They don't prepare properly. Uh, they uh, don't have enough information about their company. They don't have enough information about their product. They don't have enough information about doing business in China in general. And I believe that in many ways, the most important thing about doing business in China is preparation, preparation, preparation. Of course, not all, it, the faults are not all on the, on the Western side. Uh, sometimes the, uh, the Chinese behave irresponsibly uh, and, uh, and sometimes they can try to force you to do things that you don't want to do. Sometimes, believe it or not, they might even tell you lies. Uh, they certainly have insufficient knowledge of international business, uh, although uh, that, is, that is getting better. Uh, and the younger Chinese businessmen understand Western business better than they did and certainly I believe on occasion better than we understand Chinese business. Another problem that you will face are both both sides and that is uh, imperfect translation. Translation into Chinese and into English is difficult. Uh, I always use, as I mentioned earlier, a, a, a translator that I know well, who knows me, who knows how I think, who is able to assimilate information about companies and about back, the, the people's backgrounds. She knows the bureaucracy uh, and, and she's a, she is a great help. One of the things that, that seems to happen uh, in Chinese negotiations, if you have a, have a translator on your side, is that they, they tend to think that she's on their side, that as, as she's Chinese, then she must be one of us. Uh, and on numerous occasions, uh, my translator, Stephanie, has told me that she's overheard or even been part of a conversation when they're discussing what their next step should be in the negotiation, because we don't, no, no, nobody else understands Chinese uh, and, and they say it in front of her and don't even think that she might say something about, about this to us. So the, the, 
the problems of translation can cause misunderstandings, conflict, and even failures in negotiation. There is one good thing about translation, and that is that you can always blame the translator, but you ought to uh, square this with the translator beforehand, uh, otherwise she, he or she may get very upset if you blame them and say, oh, well, you know, the translator must have got this wrong. Another point about translators is that you should have your own translator. Uh, you should not take a translator offered by the other side, the, your, your negotiating partner, because they, they will not tell you what, you know, everything that is, that is uh, here, that, is, oh, that, that you want to hear. Uh, sometimes they, they will change the emphasis of what is being said. Sometimes they will say something, something quite different. So you want somebody that, that you can rely on. I've I mentioned legal issues, uh, and uh, I think the Chinese think that we are Western businesses too reliant on lawyers, and that we argue uh, too much about legal details without considering whether these details are, whether it is desirable to enforce these details in China or whether it is even possible to enforce these, these things in, in China or whether they're relevant. Chinese law is different uh, from uh, Western law. Uh, there are lots of stories about Chinese courts only preferring Chinese uh, plaintiffs or defendants. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, but the Chinese do have an advantage when they go to court uh, because it's all in their language, they understand everything and so on. I think sometimes the lawyers, uh, their requests for inclusion in contract, clauses that, that, that are, need to be written, can be so demanding uh, that they can destroy the whole negotiation. And my uh, preferred approach to this is not to involve lawyers in the negotiation. Uh, and I've never been in a negotiation with the Chinese where they've had a lawyer. What we've done normally is we, we for example, if I'm negotiating a joint venture agreement, I know what should go in a joint venture agreement in China. And we negotiate around this. Uh, we, 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 we agree in principle uh, whatever should go into a joint venture contract and only after we've agreed it, both sides, do we put it to the lawyers. Uh, and I would put it to our lawyers and say to them there, this is what we've agreed, please write as a contract and make this watertight, but keep it as simple as possible. And that seems to be... Uh, an approach that works well. The Chinese, of course, put it to their lawyers uh, and their lawyers also go through it with a fine tooth comb. I've always found though, that it is better that you or I write the contract, then you know everything that's in it. I have never uh, in any negotiation in China allowed the Chinese to write the contract. Now you might think, you know, how can you do it, allow them? But what you find is that if you're prepared to write the contract, the Chinese are prepared to let you because you're doing the work. Uh, and that's an, another important point about uh, Chinese, Chinese negotiation. The party that does the work 
controls the negotiation. And if you only take one thing away from this series of podcasts, that ought to be it. The party that does the work controls the negotiation. I've talked about preparation uh, and the Chinese perceive that we are not well prepared and that we don't know about the realities of China. So therefore, you know, we, we, we may ask things that are just not deliverable in China. And that we, they say that we, we don't understand the psychology and how they work in this co complex system. They don't even know how to develop friendships. I think that's one of the problems with Western business. It's a sort of, you know, quick in, do the deal and quickly out. We don't take time to develop relationships. Uh, and I think that's a mistake because the, the better the foundation of the relationship, the more likely it is that the business will be successful. You have to be patient, uh, you have to make friends, and you have to get to know people, even if you don't want to. I mean, you know, we, we, as business people, we can't always do business with people that we like, but we do have to learn how to get on with people. And I've always find the Chinese quite easy to get on with. Uh, if, you know, don't, if, if you be yourself, if you act naturally, you really should not have too many problems in getting on with, with, with the Chinese. But you do need to invest time in the relationship. As I mentioned at the, uh, earlier, the first visit or certainly the first day or so that you meet Chinese partners, you'll find that you don't achieve anything. When you look back, you'll say, well, why did we go? You know, all we did was uh, we went, you know, we went to see the local sites, we went to the Chinese opera, uh, we went to see the Great Wall and so on. But as I said, you are being observed and appraised and you've got to go through this particular process. Uh, and China business takes a long time and it's difficult, especially for middle managers who will go to China, say for a week, they're entertained, they're taken sightseeing and then they get back and they go to report to their boss and the boss says, what did you do? You know, and, and you said, well, we didn't even get down to negotiations. That's a difficult thing to do. So you've got to manage the expectations of your bosses so that they know what to expect. I think that we, that Chinese business, Western business people, sorry, rely too much on market reports and not enough on actual experience in the market. Uh, I've always had problems with Western companies and with my clients when I say to them that they ought to do some form of market research. And the answer to that is usually, the comment to that is usually, I don't want to do market research, I want to get on with the business. But my reply is, how can you get on with the business if you know nothing about the market? Now, if you know nothing about the market, if you know, know nothing about the competition, if you know nothing about what prices are being charged in the market, how can you expect to, that the 
partner that you're negotiating with will tell you the truth. He could tell you anything. He could tell you, you know, that the prices are very high or the prices are very low, depending on what, what sort of uh, message he's trying to give you. He could say life is very difficult, life is very easy, and you've got no way of checking that information. So I believe that market research or a market investigation is of paramount importance when going to China. Also, you should not expect short-term results. The Chinese look upon a relationship as a long-term thing, and it's not over when the contract is signed. You're working towards the next contract. Now, that, for business people, should be very good because, you know, what we want is always repeat customers. And if you do this properly, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't have repeat customers in, in, in China going on for a very, very long time. I've talked about relationship building, and I don't think we're good at that. Uh, I think we're too impatient. I think our bosses are too impatient. And I think in some ways, you know, we, 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 we may not uh, have the skill to, to build relationships and, 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 and collect information. But what you've got to remember in China is that having these relationships reduces the risk of your investment. And that's what you're trying to do. You know, the, if you go into a market with, with no knowledge and conclude a deal, you're exposing your company to really quite a lot of, uh, of risk, of business risk. Uh, one of the things that, 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 that people do, Western businesses do, that really annoys the Chinese is that they make promises that they don't keep. Uh, now, if you do make a promise to a Chinese uh, individual or a Chinese company, make sure that you keep it because that would actually destroy the business relationship if you don't do it. And that, that, that's true not only of large promises, but of smaller promises as well. It, all of this goes to enhance your reputation as a reliable person to do business with, somebody that you will want to do business uh, with over, over the longer term. If, if you uh, take visitors to the UK, for example, make sure that they are greeted by the senior people in your organization. Uh, that gives them face, as we've talked about before. Uh, and and you, ideally, you want the senior members in your organization, including up to and including the, the chairman and the managing director, at least to take sufficient interest in China that they will spend 10 minutes talking to the delegation. That's all you're asking. You're, not a, not, you're neither asking them to uh, participate, participate in the negotiations, nor do you want them to participate in the negotiations. Uh, sometimes uh, senior executives are not great at, at this. Uh, they're, they're too full of their own importance. Uh, they don't like to take advice from people and they're often very impatient. I can remember one occasion where 
we went uh, with a UK insurance company with the managing director and the chairman. And the chairman was really quite a, a distinguished businessman. And we went to see the Ministry of State Security, which, as you can probably gather, is a very important organization in China. I can't remember now why we went to see them. But when, you, when we went in, there's a lot of security in any case at Chinese companies. And we had to wait in the winter, in the cold, for about half an hour while the, the man at the gate got to the right person. And you could see that the chairman of this company was getting so impatient, so upset, uh, that after about 20 minutes, he said, I'm not staying here any longer. I'm going back to the hotel, which he did. Now, that's, you know, that, that's all well and good. You know, his problem was that nobody had ever kept him waiting in his business life. But now, when he's in China, he was being kept, kept waiting and he couldn't hack it. You know, it wasn't something he could deal with. But the Chinese knew that he was on the delegation list. Uh, and if he doesn't turn up, they, they, they want to know why. And that he, he, the fact that he didn't turn up is actually a cause for them to lose face. So you know, sometimes uh, you have to do things that you wouldn't normally do, especially senior managers. I think you need to be careful with senior managers, really senior managers. I don't believe that senior managers really have a place in negotiations with the Chinese. I think they should only come when either there's a contract to be signed or right at the very end of the negotiations, when there are a couple of important outstanding masters and then they can make the concessions uh, and, and sign the contract. That is really the only place that they should be in a negotiation because they don't understand China. They don't understand their own business and, and in many ways that they're a liability. They don't, they don't have the patience. Uh, they, don't, they don't want to adopt the Chinese way of doing business. Uh, they want to do it the way that they, they've always done it and, and, and keep them away. That, that that's really is my advice to you. In business relationships, you know, you, 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 should, you, should, you should listen more than you should speak. Uh, you should deal with the Chinese as representatives of their company. Uh, now some of these people are very important people in very important companies. Rank is extremely important, uh, as we've said, uh, and, and you should treat people with, with, with due deference. I think you shouldn't be over familiar, uh, either in China or elsewhere. I, I did work with, a, with, with um, the representative of one of my clients uh, who was uh, over familiar with his managing director uh, after he got to know him through, through a negotiation. Uh, and one day he overstepped the mark and he lost his job. So it, 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 it's not a great thing to be over familiar. Always show people the respect that you think that they deserve. If you're dealing with a Chinese company uh, and some very senior pe person or people uh, come 
to meet you and, 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 and look after you, uh, maybe not take part in the negotiations. That's a sign that the Chinese attach great importance to your company uh, and is one that you should be on, on the lookout for. That's why you should know the titles and the positions of all the people that you're dealing with. Of course, when you've dealt with the Chinese for a longer period, like in a joint venture negotiation, where I've been involved in joint venture negotiations that took over 12 months to bring to fruition, formality can break down as you get to know the people. Uh, but be wary of over-familiarity, as I've just said. You know, it, it's do not be over-friendly over informal. Remember that there's always got to be this distance. Now, these, these people are very senior uh, and you've got to be very careful how you deal with them. And you've also got to be very careful what you say to them about the work done by their staff. It is probably best either not to say anything or to say everything is going well and everybody is working hard. One aspect of Chinese business that is important is the giving of gifts. Uh, if you go to visit a company for the first time, uh, you should take a gift. If you go to a banquet, you should take a gift because you will receive gifts as well. Uh, these are tokens of esteem and gratitude. Uh, they don't have to be uh, particularly expensive. Um, if your delegation is going to China, you should have one gift for the company, which would be a, a more elaborate gift, more expensive. Uh, what it should be really depends on you. Uh, and then there should be smaller gifts, uh, which are more or less tokens of, um, of esteem for the people that you're dealing with. And I, I, would, I personally wouldn't think that you would need to, to uh, spend more than, than, than 10 or 20 pounds uh, on, on, on a gift, uh, but be careful because some gifts are not appropriate. The ideal gift is something that, say, resent, re represents the art or the, the craft of, of the UK or, or, or whatever country you come from, or maybe a book of, of photographs of, of, of your country, you know, maybe something like the Yorkshire Dales or the, the glories of Cornwall or whatever, whatever that might be. Sometimes a technical book is a good idea. If you've been, if you've been uh, going to the company for a while, uh, it's a good idea to take a lot of photographs and then one day you can put them all into a, an album uh, and, and present them to the company. The sort of things that you need to be a bit careful of are these inappropriate gifts, one of which is a clock. Do not give a clock to a Chinese. Uh, that has the connotation that you're wishing their life away uh, and it would upset somebody if they received a clock from, from you. Strangely enough, this does not appear to apply to watches, uh, but I would be wary of giving a watch anyway. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, do not uh, give gifts of excessive value because that creates an obligation that people might not want to uh, have thrust upon them. Uh, do not, you may probably would never do this, 
but you should not give a man a green hat uh, because that is a, a, a criticism that his wife is having an affair with someone uh, and that he would not take that uh, very care, very nicely. There's also you have a, a, a gift that you could give, which would be a turtle. Now, you may laugh at that, but I uh, actually got some very nice little tortoise-like turtle uh, gifts, uh, you know, just, just little ones about two or three inches long. Uh, and I was going to give them uh, to clients uh, in China, to customers. Uh, and fortunately, Stephanie, uh, the translator, said, oh, you can't do that because the gift of a turtle uh, is very similar to that of a green hat that you're effectively saying to, to the man, your wife is having an affair. And these things tend not to go down too well. Gifts are generally wrapped in red paper, uh, as I've said earlier. Th th this is uh, a mark of value uh, and uh, is, is quite normal. And, and if you go, to, certainly if you buy a gift in China, they will gift wrap it for you in red paper. If you're buying gifts in, in the UK, which actually is better, uh, then uh, make sure that they're wrapped in, in red paper. When you present a gift, uh, offer it with both hands, the same way as you would offer a business card. The best time to present a gift is either at the end of the first meeting, if, if it's your first time in the company, or if you're having a banquet uh, at the end of the, uh, of, of the banquet, when there's often a, a ritual gift giving before uh, you depart. Uh, do not open the gift in the presence of the giver. Uh, and as for, uh, as it is in the UK and, and in the West, it, it's, this, it's the, the gift, it's the thought that counts, not the gift. Because gifts, gifts are difficult because they verge on corruption. So make sure that your gift is, could not be construed as, uh, as corrupt. My experience is the best way to decide whether a gift is corrupt or not is usually if it can be consumed in 24 hours, then it's a gift. If it takes longer than 24 hours to consume, then it's a bribe. So be very careful. And you might find that that rule of thumb is quite, uh, quite useful. Because corruption is a way of life in China. There are lots and lots of countries, especially at the provincial and local government level, are corrupt. And they will effectively solicit gifts. And I've been asked for gifts. But interestingly enough, the people who've asked me for gifts have never, ever, in my estimation at least, been the people that could deliver on what they were asking for. Or what on what I was asking for, and, and my, my advice is just do not do it. It, 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 it is it isn't worth it. But you can and should spend money on entertaining, and you should spend money inviting Chinese your Chinese counterparts to banquets, uh, and then you can decide how much you want to spend on them. 